Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Ever wondered what it would be like having an identical twin? How alike would you be to that person? How much of an individual would you be? Saul Diskin and his identical twin brother, Marty Diskin, grew up together in New York City where they were inseparable. They dressed alike, ate together, attended the same classes in the same school, played with the same friends, and read the same books. As adults, they began and lived separate lives. Saul in Phoenix, Arizona, and Marty near Boston, Massachusetts. In 1991, Marty, who had suffered from leukemia for 20 years, needed a bone marrow transplant, which he received from Saul. In his extraordinarily intimate book entitled The End of the Twins, A Memoir of Losing a Brother, Saul Diskin chronicles the rich relationship beginning in their early childhood and ending well past Marty's death in 1997, shortly before their 63rd birthday. I spoke with Saul Diskin from his home in Phoenix, Arizona in September of 2001 and asked him to tell us what motivated him to reveal this intensely personal and intimate story. Some of the situations um, that you selected are so personal, and I guess my question goes as to why did you select them as opposed to others? And, of course, we don't know what the others are because they're not in your book. Well, if uh, by the personal you mean things that uh, occurred between Marty and I, my, my twin brother Marty and I, our, our early life sexual explorations with each other, things like that, the, the purpose of that is not just to present salacious material, but to show just how close the relationship is with twins. I, I say in the book that there were times when we didn't know where one body ended and where the other one began. Later in life, when he needed the bone marrow transplant, and I was feeling particularly vulnerable, when I had the feeling that if he would die, I would die too. 
I, I say that I didn't know where one person ended and the other one began. So it, it seemed to me that it was, it was necessary to show just by, by, by demonstrating events and actions how close that relationship is and was. What was it like uh, to be a very young child and, and have this duality, the twindom, as, as you call it, um, where you're walking around, and, and as you just said, you're not really sure you were uh, Saul or Marty? Yes, and that's something that's uh, foisted on twins by the world, by, by their families, Twins are, are, are viewed as uh, these adorable little objects, especially when, in our case, we were dressed alike. Um, and so when we would encounter strangers, they would look at us with this great, approving, loving uh, uh, first impression and then treat us as if we were, we were little freaks. I mean, they would speak to us in the third person. Uh, by the way, that didn't end just when we were children, when... Uh, uh, my brother and I were well, well into our adulthood, into middle age. People would, would, would look at us, point at us, because we, we bore a, a very strong similarity to each other, even despite the uh, you know, various scars that we had picked up over the years that were different. And, and they would speak to us in the third person. Look at him. He has a scar on his face. Look at that. Can your wives tell you apart? Things that, that, that were absolutely would be considered... Uh, extremely rude if, if you would use the same the same language with somebody who was disabled, let's say, had a physical disability. So it it, it, um, it, it was a mixed blessing. On the one hand, as children, we knew that uh, we had the power to captivate people, but we, we sure didn't like being considered as uh, one unit and not two individuals. At what point uh, in your life or what events began to cause you to develop an individual uh, ego, an individual self-identity? Well, I can't really answer that. There was no um, precise moment when, when that happened. But what, what did occur between us is that we knew without discussing it when we were quite young, I would say probably eight years old or, or in that area, that in order to individuate um, to separate, become, become, you know, separate, separate persons, that we would have to separate physically. Uh, these, these thoughts didn't occur to me or, or um, uh, you know, become lodged in my thinking un, until very recently, as a matter of fact, until shortly before I wrote this book. But at that time, the only method we could think of to do, uh, to affect that separation, was to develop a rivalry in which we would do everything from try to excel uh, at sports and things like that to the other one, humiliate the other one, beat the hell out of the other one. And that lasted for some years, and it, it was quite serious. And we were about 17, we separated physically, and with a, with a very brief exception, we never lived in the same city uh, again, ever. That was when you came to California and uh, he uh, and Marty uh, joined the Army? Yes. Uh, he, was, he was going to school, but, but not doing very well, and, and he joined the Army and uh, served two years. And then when he came out, he, uh, uh, he went to UCLA. And I was living in California then. I was married. I had one child. And we were together in, in the Los Angeles area for uh, about a year. 
fact, he lived with us for five or six months, and we lived in a in a in a, in a rented uh, cottage in Malibu, and we got burned out in a fire there. Then my wife and child and I moved to Arizona, and from that time till he died, we we never lived anywhere close to each other. He lived in the east; I lived in the west. Well, staying with the um, concept uh, that you could not tell where one ended and the other one began. Uh, I'm intrigued in in how that was developing in you as a child and what you have uh, discussed with Marty uh, about that concept when he was a child, and then how it kind of ebbed as uh, you matured into manhood. Well, strangely, we we never discussed it until we discussed the book in, in manuscript. It wasn't completed then. While we, uh, while we were growing up, we never discussed it because it was our environment, the way the air and sky are environment to people, the way snow is to an Eskimo. You don't, you don't have to discuss it. It's ubiquitous. But there was no question but that we had the same understanding of those things, and it played itself out when we were children daily. Uh, I, I knew precisely what he was going to say as he was saying it, or that, that immediate instant before he said it. I knew what he was feeling. If he was in a situation that I was observing and he was, he was going to get hurt or he was going to experience a triumph, uh, I knew that completely, and he with me, the same thing. So your parents really did not treat you differently, as individuals differently? Well, that's that's a very complicated question. Uh, no, I, I don't think so. I think our parents did treat us differently. How so? Uh, our, our parents were immigrants from Eastern Europe, and they both had very, very hard lives. My father was a terrible stutterer, and had uh, he had uh, stomach ulcers also that gave him terrible pain. And, and I was a, was a significant stutterer when I was a child. I don't know how that happened exactly, but... Um, I mean, genetically, I don't know how it happened. But it, it was probably true that my father had a greater kinship with me than with my brother. And and I think that, although I, I, I can't tell you precisely how that worked its way out as children, because memory deceives, but when we got older, there were conflicts between my father and my brother. Um, and and I, I always had the feeling that it was because of uh, what my father and I shared that my brother didn't. So I just concluded that as children, he, he did treat us slightly differently. Uh, my mother, I don't think so. I think she, uh, she treated us exactly the same. Well, Saul, I'd like to ask you about your considerations of the uh, genetic similarities that identical twins have. But first, I want to tell our listeners that this week we're talking with Saul Diskin. He is the author of a recent book called the end of the twins. He's an identical twin with his brother Marty who died several years ago uh, from leukemia. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel.
Saul, tell us what you've learned about how you and your brother are identical genetically. Well, the the greatest scientific proof that we were identical twins was when we had to prepare for the bone marrow transplant that my brother had. He had uh, a disease called chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and uh, in 1990-91, he started to deteriorate. The biology of the disease had changed. The bone marrow transplant was uh, um, was inevitable. And in, in trying to determine whether I was a suitable donor in the bone marrow transplant, we did a series of very, very sophisticated blood tests. And we, we proved in, in those blood tests to be so identical that that one was indistinguishable from another. The only test short of that that uh, uh, we, we could have done scientifically to absolutely prove it would be a DNA test, but that wasn't necessary because we we were after blood compatibility. Um, but we spent most of our life apart, so the environmental factors that led to who we, we became were, were vastly different. My brother became an academic uh, a, uh, a Ph.D. and full professor in anthropology at MIT, and he lived in the in the Boston area for most of his adult life. I became a small businessman and lived in the Southwest in Phoenix for most of my life. So we were subject to, to different social, political, environmental influences for three quarters of our lives, and 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 that made us different people. It gave us different attitudes. Uh, about politics, about um, the world at large in general. And in, in our case, I would say that, that our environment shaped us as people very, very substantially. In the reading that I've done about genetic similarity and how genetic similarity um, uh, develops individual traits in people, the researchers who, who write about that also say that while... Twins who are genetically identical, I mean identical twins, uh, may have a genetic trait that gives a disposition towards something. An environmental event in the life of one of those twins may cause uh, a disease to occur or or a a development um, different from the other one to occur, Uh, including things that are in utero, uh, placental separation, infection. These are things that are that are that are cited. So, in your situation, uh, it could be the source of your stuttering uh, and your different pursuits as adults and uh, his contact with leukemia. Yes, I would say so. Uh, the The causes of leukemia are are not fully settled yet. There are uh, viral theories, uh, environmental theories, and. I had occasion to speak to uh, an oncological geneticist at the City of Hope in Los Angeles, because while my brother was going through this, and in fact, after after he died, uh, I, my children were in childbearing age and were having children, and I just um, neglected the subject, although it was on their minds, it turned out, but they wouldn't mention it to me. What he told me about the disease is that there is no proof that it, it is... Um, um, hereditarily transmitted. He said that the surest proof of that is that because my genes and my late brother's were identical, if if it was genetically transmitted, I would have it, and I don't have it. Uh, I think 
later research, more recent research, has cast the slightest bit of doubt on that because of what I said just a short time ago, that is, environmental factors could trigger the predisposition towards something in one person. My brother did a lot of field work as an anthropologist in very unhealthy places in southern Mexico and Central America, South America. Um, so it is possible that he, he was exposed to environmental um, influences that triggered the disease, and, and I didn't. Saul, I'd like to ask you if you could uh, read a portion of uh, your book for us and um, give us a little introduction to it before you read it. Sure. When my brother was uh, in the bone marrow transplant unit in, uh, at the Yale New Haven Medical Center, um, this was in 1993, I, I was there for, the, uh, for a month. Uh, I was his donor, and I stayed at the, uh, uh, I stayed in New Haven until, until my marrow colonized in his body. But I had this feeling that, um, that I needed to, to write something to him that he would read when he received the, the bone marrow. That is, it would be, it would be somehow uh, a healthy thing for him, for him to hear those, those thoughts uh, from me. So I did write the letter, and uh, the the doctor who was in charge of the bone marrow transplant permitted him to have it. Um, everything that went into his room was sterilized, but but he permitted the letter to go in so that he could read it as the marrow was actually being being dripped into his body. And it goes like this: My Marty, a long time ago when we were cubs rolling around in our self-created den, when the experience of one was shared by the other. When the world considered us as one and we responded as one, we didn't need words between us to convey our thoughts or describe our moods. Now, after having lived apart almost three times as long as we live together, we do. Not as many words as mere siblings, perhaps, but after the long absence from each other in time and distance and the different lives we have lived, I am drawn, obliged, to speak to you clearly as an adult. Since your illness worsened two years ago or so, and more particularly since we spoke of death in Telluride last year, I have felt and imagined the unbearable pain of being without you. It is the feeling of having some integral part of me physically torn out of me, something living in me, but not entirely mine. I would survive your death as you would survive mine. But something that I could not easily explain or describe to anyone else but you would be finished for me would be stilled forever, that part of me that we had in common as children, that part that never fully separated from each other. I have felt closer to that secret part of us this last year or so than I have since we were children. Although at times I didn't feel it was a good thing to be twins, I feel favored by fate now to be twins with you. Being able to exchange a part of our body is sweetly appropriate, but that is the mechanical part. The rest of what I give you comes from that secret place we share, from a place deeper than my heart. That magma of feeling of love for you is with you. Feel it in your brain, in your gut. It will draw you. It will pull you to me, to your family, to your friends, to your productive life, to health. Think of it, dear Marty, when things get bad. Focus on it. Use it. Let it pull you back to us. Come back to us all and come back to your Solly. I'd like to take a moment and say that this week we're talking with Saul Diskin. 
He is the author of a recent book called The End of the Twins. It's the extraordinary story of his life with his identical twin brother, who passed away from leukemia about four years ago. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Saul, you end your book by questioning what your life would be like after your brother died. Uh, You say, but what will I be? What will this thing, this Saul, be without the other part? What have you become since your brother died? Well, I've I've not been changed as a person, but uh, what what happened after he died was... um, that I became depressed. Uh, it turned out clinically depressed. Uh, I, I resisted it for, for a long time, and what uh, I told myself is that I was just unutterably sad. I mean, I was that too, but I, was, but I did become depressed and sought help for, uh, for three or four months and uh, happened to, to get a, a skillful therapist and uh, was um, able to reconcile those things, and I'm, I'm perfectly fine now and have been for the past few years. But um, in a way that, uh, th- that I can't be scientific about, I felt something just torn away from me, something that, that, that was missing then in a very acutely painful way and will be missing from me for the rest of my life, although I have accommodated uh, pretty well to what I believe. And so I, I, I always made the formulation that uh, because we... We were the the product of a split egg and had a very early, uh, in a very similar environment and and genetically were alike. That there were parts of us, even though we 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 tried as hard as we could to differentiate completely, parts of us that didn't differentiate that we shared, kind of a, a, a psychic part, if you will. And when he died, that just went away in both of us. Um, it's a longing, a vacuum, an emptiness. That, that that I feel. Did your mother and brother have a chance to see the book? My mother was um, uh, she she died less than a year ago, and she 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 knew that I had written the book, but uh, she didn't quite know what it meant. She was um, I, I wouldn't say illiterate, but she was you know functionally illiterate. Uh, I mean, she she could read and write in English, but she uh, she, she did it very poorly. And she was very old by that time. She was ninety, and uh, her health was failing. And so it didn't it didn't mean very much to her. She, I mean, she when when she first heard that I had written the book before it was published, she she knew that it was a matter of pride, and she expressed her pride. And but uh, um, she never read it. My brother read um, half of it. He read. Uh, I had visited him one time, and I uh, brought about half the manuscript that, w- that was finished at the time, and I showed it to him. And it's. It's kind of an interesting story because um, uh, I, I was sort of prepared for what would happen. He took it upstairs with him overnight, and he read it, and he came down in the morning. He said to me, uh, I, I read it, he said, I have a couple of comments to make to you about it, and I, I whipped out my pad and pen. He said, you know, you said on Union Street we lived on the fifth floor. No, we did. We lived on the third floor. And then when, when in this episode you said we were seven years old, we were really six. He made some other comment, and I, I dutifully wrote those things down, closed the book, and said, thank you, I'll, I'll correct them. 
How did you feel in response to that, considering such personal revelations uh, that were otherwise in your book? Oh, oh, how did he feel? No, you. Uh, well, before I tell you, let me just tell you that at the end of that day, uh, he, he grabbed a hold of me by the arm very strongly, and he said to me, look, he said, forget about that stuff that I told you. He said, that's nonsense. He said, it's a good book. And, and, and there was expressed yet again the, the, this rivalry that we thought we had fully suppressed. But uh, 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 um, you say, how did I feel about the personal things that were expressed? Yes. I, I thought that they were part of the story and had to be expressed that way. Saul, uh, what other writing projects are you working on now? I'm writing a novel now. Can you tell us what it's about? Well, just uh, in, in, in headline, it's, uh, it's a novel about the awakening of a young man. Well, Saul Diskin, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. Good. Um, other than The Entwined Lives, which I mentioned earlier, a book that I read very slowly and uh, w- with tremendous interest, it's, it's a book written by an old and very close friend of mine by the name of Paul Brockelman, who was a, philosophy, a philosopher of religion. The book is called Cosmology and Creation. And it's a book that posits that the Big Bang and our modern understanding of cosmology has become our myth of creation. And, and he discusses what he considers to be the spiritual significance of a contemporary cosmology. Fascinating book. It's a book that uh, somebody who, who, who is completely agnostic about religion can find a great deal of meaning in. In, in fact, if you have just a moment, there, there is a very short uh, um, paragraph that I would love to quote from the book. Sure, go ahead. It's sort of the essence of the book also, in which he discusses a thing that he calls wonder as, as, as a, uh, a, a spiritual or religious feeling, and he, he defines it as follows. He says, wonder is an experience of the radical and inexplicable mystery of being encountered at the boundaries of understanding. So, it's a lovely, lovely short uh, I mean, sentence, I think. Well, Saul Diskin, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. My pleasure. Thank you very much for the thoughtful conversation. Saul Diskin is the author of The End of the Twins, a memoir of losing a brother. The books he recommends are Entwined Lives by Nancy Siegel, a book about the similarity of fraternal and identical twins, and Cosmology and Creation by Paul Brockelman. For 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707 
621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>